You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, season one, episode 15. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. If you're in North America, one of the perennial debates in higher education finance is about the efficiency of performance-based funding, or PBF, with the bulk of the academic evidence suggesting in one way or another that such schemes do not achieve their purported aims. My guest today provides another perspective on that. Dr. Ben Youngblood is from the Center for Higher Education Policy Studies, that's CHEPS, at the University of Twente in Enschede, the Netherlands. And he's a co-author of a recent European Commission report on the subject. One thing to note about performance-based funding in Europe is that there's a lot of it. Perhaps surprisingly to those who see PBF as a perfidious neoliberal plot, it's actually the Nordic countries, such as Finland and Sweden, which rely most heavily on this method of funding. Ben and I review some of the patterns here and also talk about the difference between performance-based funding, which is based on backward-looking indicator data, and performance-based contracts, which are much more forward-looking. We also talk about the different ends to which PBF is employed in the continent, noting that the European approach has a much bigger focus on research. Ben's take on PBF schemes in Europe contrasts pretty strongly with the consensus view in America. He thinks that on the whole, they do incentivize institutions to do the things that government wants them to do. Now, whether this finding is due to the very different research approaches or the different sums of money put into these schemes, that's an open question. But Ben makes the case that a lot of other external factors are at work too. One has to do with the fact that where research PBF dollars are concerned, American institutions are already in a very competitive environment. And as for dollars for completion, high tuition fees similarly mean that institutions already have a lot of incentive to work for better completion rates. In a word, context matters. But enough from me, let's hear from Ben. Ben Youngblood, welcome to the show. Your report for the European Commission is entitled Final Report on the Study on the State and Effectiveness of National Funding Systems of Higher Education to Support the European Universities Initiative. That's a mouthful, and it clearly covers a lot of ground. How did a project with a name like this come to have a focus specifically on performance-based funding? It was a project that was awarded to us by the European Commission, and they are interested very much in performance-based funding already for a couple of years. And so that was part of the specifications they laid out for us to look at when we tended for the project. That's what we had to do. But they added this second part of the sentence. It's systems that also support the European Universities Initiative, and that's kind of a pet project of the European Commission these days. They also wanted a study to look at how these consortia and these transnational collaborations between universities, how they are funded, and whether there's perhaps even a bit of performance incentives included in the funding for these. So it's a pretty long title, but the focus of the first part of the report was indeed on performance-based funding. and. That's the topic we looked at for the 27 European member states. And in that first half, as CHEPS projects usually do, there's some very helpful categorization and conceptualization defining different types of funding. One of the distinctions you make is between performance-based funding and performance-based contracts. Could you tell us a little bit about each of these types of funding and which kinds of countries use each type? Because it's actually... It seems pretty critical to some of the points you make later in the document. Well, performance-based funding comes in two shapes in the sense of funding that is 
kind of taking an ex post, let's say, a look, looking back into what institutions of higher education do in terms of education performance, research performance, and other types of performance. And then these institutions are rewarded in relation to the degree of performance. It's quite simple, but it gives them incentives to, to stress performance and to work on those things. Performance contracts are more dialogue-based and they are more forward-looking. They also are connected to funding one way or the other, but they are giving institutions the option to negotiate with the funding agency, the Ministry of Education, to come up with targets, with ambitions, and then the Ministry is deciding, well, this is the, the budget we have in mind for you to work with for the next four to five years. So that's more forward-looking. but doesn't mean that it's either one or the other. It's usually countries are using a combination of the two, eh? exposed funding, looking back, as well as looking forward by means of contracts. And both types of funding can stress performance in one way or the other. And why countries use them? It's because they want to stress performance and they want to reward institutions in line with the performance they deliver. But what's the difference between the countries that want to use contracts versus performance formulas? Is there something that distinguishes the ones that specifically use performance-based contracts? It's difficult to say because Europe has such a wide variety of higher education systems and also funding systems. So the distinction is, well, it's in the mix. There's quite a few, let's say, well-resourced higher education systems that have performance contracts because they have usually institutions that have a good capacity to negotiate and they have a strategic capacity they can make forward-looking exercises and they, are, they can run those performance agreements perhaps more easily than countries that are not so well-resourced and that may want to use a more simplistic, mechanistic funding formula where every institution is treated on the basis of its scores on a number of indicators. We were not looking into the exact reasons why one country or the other chose a particular mix. Right. But that sounds like a strong hypothesis to me that it has to do with the institution's ability, you know, strategic capacity to execute projects, which makes the difference. So the report makes the point that the most common form of government funding in Europe is a combination of formula funding and performance-based funding. But within this group, the balance between formula and performance funding seems to vary widely. I mean, you've got countries where it's sort of, you know, maybe under 10% and you've got countries where it's over 50%. So which countries rely most heavily on performance-based funding and why? Yeah, like I said, why is it's a bit difficult to say, but the countries that have a really high, high share of their core funding attached to measures or agreements on performance. There are the countries that are situated in Scandinavia, let's say Norway, Sweden, Denmark, but also our own country where I'm from, the Netherlands. So we also have a quite high degree of performance-based funding. But yeah, Finland and also Bulgaria have a quite high degree of performance-based funding. But why they do this? I mean, I think they have good systems of information in place that monitor and track performance and progress over time. They have institutions that, like you said, that are well organized and have the capacity to handle perhaps systems that focus on performance. But indeed, there's a wide variety. That's interesting. But like our project shows, there's also countries that, that change and that's, that try to tweak the system or reform the systems over time because they feel that they have to focus or stress on a particular objective and then attach funding to it. So it's a dynamic picture that we have taken a snapshot of. 
Performance-based funding is based on indicators, right? So as you said, it's measurement. You have to be able to measure how institutions are doing on indicators in order to make the system work. In the United States, where performance-based funding systems are equally common, I think in most years, somewhere between 25 and 30 states use them, and then there's another 10 or 15 that use them occasionally. But in the U.S., typically the indicators are related to student performance. Like they might be sort of, you know, a multidimensional picture of student performance, but it is completion rates or staying in school rates. And sometimes they're calculated in very complicated ways to meet equity goals. I don't get the impression that in Europe, you're quite as narrowly focused. So what are the kinds of indicators most commonly in use in Europe? And does the use vary much by country? Yeah, well, it's not that different from the U.S. Examples you mentioned, we also have a strong focus in Europe on students getting degrees as the outcome of their time in university or in college. So completion rates are equally important in quite big, let's say, problems, challenges when it comes to student completing. Also students completing in time. That means students often take more time than the stipulated number of years they are expected to study. So that's quite common in, in Europe. But what is different from the U.S. is I think that we also in Europe and quite a few countries have a strong focus on research performance or indicators of research performance like numbers of publications, citation rates, or even scores in research assessment exercises. And they try to place a number on, on the quality of research in any university. And so there's also a strong research performance element in those European systems. Um, I guess in the U.S. that's not necessary because it's a system where research is funded mostly through all kinds of competitions and there's no need to stress it even further through these performance-based funding systems. But the most common indicators in Europe are, like I said, the degree of completion, but it's also external income that is generated through all kinds of research contracts that are won by university or university departments, doctorates, PhDs, they're also emphasized in performance-based funding. So it's, yeah, it's a different mixes. Different weights, they vary by country, depending on what countries have in terms of ambitions or what they see as the most important gap to fill. We need to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Ben, moving over from performance-based funding to performance contracts or performance agreements, it seems to me that there are different things being incentivized in these two areas. So that teaching and learning seems to be an area which gets attention in performance agreements or performance contracts, but not in performance-based funding formulas. And I'm kind of intrigued by this. Like, what's the content of these agreements? How does an institution deliver on a teaching and learning commitment in a performance contract? What kinds of enforcement mechanisms do you see here? Yeah, that's more than one question. It's, uh, in the contract, institutions are usually expected to make reference to the national goals. Yeah? So the goals of the Ministry of Education, who has particular ambitions for the country as a whole, like internationalization or strengthening the quality of education or strengthening the quality of research. 
So those are the kind of goals that institutions are then trying to, to respond to in light of their own institutional strengths, opportunities, but also weaknesses to cover areas that they can do better. So that's the kind of things that are included in a contract. They are responding to, to the national ambitions, the national strategy, but on top of that, the institutions can also bring in their own ambitions so they can pay attention to regional needs or particular areas of research they feel they can stress because there's an opportunity, a future technology they want to work on. So the content is a mix of national goals and institutional goals, and the institutions are then expected to deliver on those goals in the next three to four or five years. And the way they do that is by putting in place, let's say, new institutes or hiring new staff or getting new technology in place or innovating the teaching and learning in one way or the other by introducing new types of new didactical models, new types of software teaching and how it's checked well in the deliver on those things. That's, I think that's by showing results and in their mandatory annual reports, they have to write for their funding agency, their ministry, and the annual reports then have paragraphs that's mostly in a qualitative way, but supported by numbers that show what institutions have been doing in all these things that promise to work on. Let me ask you a question about the differences between your analysis on performance-based funding and the kind of analyses that have been taking place in North America. A big theme in North America is that performance-based funding doesn't work in the sense of increasing completion rates. Now, your review of case studies indicated that they have a number of positive effects in the sense that things intended to be incentivized were in fact being incentivized. They worked, they were getting results. Does that mean in your opinion that performance-based funding works and how strong would you say the evidence is? We did not do a very sophisticated quantitative analysis of this. Um, it is simply we felt that the data to do that kind of thing over 27 countries or even a subset of that is not there. I mean, the countries are so different and so diverse. So we relied on more qualitative information. We asked a lot of experts and we looked at existing evaluations that have been carried out in the countries about those topics of whether those systems of performance-based funding had delivered on their promises. What we noted then is that those funding systems did not exist in isolation. They were often part of a whole set of tools that governments implemented together with funding reforms, tools to get to a particular results, and let's say a higher level of performance one way or the other. And so that combination of tools makes it also very difficult to identify what the exact impact is of the funding in this toolbox. And so we did not do a, a very, let's say, highbrow, sophisticated, quantitative study, but we relied on qualitative information from a whole set of different sources. And that leads us to believe that those systems indeed stress the things that the governments would like to see the institutions work on. It gives institutions the signal that governments would like to see the institutions work on particular things. And the priorities and the results then are made much more transparent. But it's part of a whole set of tools. And it's partly, yeah, it's an accountability tool. It's a learning instrument. It leads us to believe that these systems in Europe, they show some positive results. You also noticed some negative effects associated with performance-based funding, though. Could you tell us what those effects are? 
We looked at, at the number of countries and asked indeed about those negative effects. And it's usually the fact that some institutions feel that the performance-based funding system doesn't treat them favorably, doesn't treat them fairly because they can never deliver on particular indicators because they happen to be in a place, in a situation where the conditions are not as resourceful or well-organized or not as, as rich than in other institutions. And so there's a large regional differences in some of those countries. Like in Italy, there's big differences between the, the northern part of Italy, where the wealthy part of the country is located, and there's more opportunities for working for business. Uh, students are from better backgrounds, whereas in the south of Italy and, let's say, Sardinia, there's more poverty, there's less opportunity to generate research funds. So those institutions located in the south, they are feeling treated unfairly. That's one of the negative effects, and then the rich institutions will become richer and the poor will remain poor. And another effect is, we saw that in a little bit in Poland, that, that institutions, when they are funded based on their research publications, they tend to really focus on publications in English language journals that goes at the expense of publications, let's say in Polish, and because the ones in those English language journals, they are rewarded. So the inequalities between institutions, even the inequalities between disciplines are sometimes seen as leading to negative side effects of the system. So finally, let's talk a little bit about why the results of your study differ from the conclusions of the major U.S. studies. Obviously, one is the tools used for assessment, right? So the American studies of performance-based funding tend to be based on some fairly finicky and, you know, in my humble opinion, not very well designed, difference in difference techniques, right? Whereas yours is a much more qualitative methodology, as you suggested. But there's another one, and that's the amount of money associated with European performance-based funding systems is a lot bigger, much higher sums of money involved than in American ones, where often it's only, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars or a few hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake in Europe. Yeah, it seems to me they're worth a lot more. And so that might concentrate institutions' mind a little bit. What's your hypothesis? Like, how, how big a factor are those two things? Uh, indeed, it has to do with the things you mentioned. I mean, the amount of public funding in Europe in general is much higher than in the U.S. or North America. Fees are, with a few exceptions, not very high in Europe. And so it's higher education institutions are depending very much on, on public funding. So governments try to use that as a lever, as a, let's say, a tool for the institutions to deliver on particular priorities or results. The other thing is that in North America, there is research funding that is perhaps part of the current funding or the recurrent funding. But in, in most research funding in North America is based on competition. So there is already quite a bit of performance incentives in place in the system. So. Europe tries to increase the orientation of performance by also including those research output indicators in the funding formula so that institutions become more focused on research performance. So there's more at stake in Europe. There's less fees. And because the fees are, are smaller, students in Europe have less of also of an incentive to complete in time. They don't have to pay that much for an extra year in college apart from the housing and the other things. But in the U.S., I think it's, it's probably much different in the more prestigious institutions. That's a good point about context and structural factors in evaluating these things. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course, you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Next week, the podcast turns its spotlight back on Canada for the first time since the relaunch in January, and our guest will be Dr. Julia Eastman, one of the authors of the quite excellent book, University Governance in Canada, Navigating Complexity. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T-Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you.